our most gracious Heavenly Father. Thank you for all of the promises that you have given us. When we reflect on your promises, Lord, we're reminded of what a faithful God you are, what a good God you are, what a gracious and loving God you are. And Lord, when we live in times when there's so much uncertainty and so much darkness, it's just so easy to be distracted by those things and to take our minds and take our hearts and and turn our eyes away from your word and your promises and instead to be filled with worry and fear and anxiety as we see all these terrible things going on around us. Father, we thank you for being a God who is faithful even when we are so faithless, even when we are so distracted. It's us. It's us. You, you don't go anywhere. You don't change. Your promises remain the same. So we pray, Lord, that as we gather today, that you would turn our hearts and our minds, turn the eyes of our hearts unto you and your promises, that we may find hope, that we may find comfort, that we may find peace in the midst of so much social turmoil. Father, today we pray for this virus that has spread around the world, and we recognize that it is a real threat to people. We ask, Lord, that you would relieve us of this disease. We do pray for respite from it, that the places that have forbidden your churches from meeting because of this disease may once again allow those churches to meet, to gather, to worship, to sing. Oh, Father, we lift up those churches, particularly in California, where they have been forbidden indefinitely from gathering indoors in such a hot state, especially Southern California, Lord. The idea of meeting outside is almost unthinkable. And so we pray for those churches. We pray for them to either have the courage to defy or that they would have a way of gathering outdoors. Father, be with those churches and be with those pastors who have to make incredibly, incredibly difficult decisions. Decisions that the church in America has has never, ever been forced to make. Be with those churches. Be with those Christians, our brothers and sisters down there who are discouraged, who are feeling isolated and removed from their church families. And we pray, Lord, that you would be using these circumstances, even these circumstances, to grow them in Christ's likeness. And Father, as we gather today, thank you for a day that we can meet. 
thank you that we have the opportunity to gather. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to continue to gather like this. We pray that our governor would allow this to continue. We pray for his salvation. We pray for our president's salvation. We pray that they would govern wisely. We pray, Lord, that they would that they would continue to allow your church to meet and to worship you. And so, Lord, we come to you with thankful hearts that we can meet. And we come to your word hungry, remembering that it is food for our souls. And so we pray, Lord, that you would feed us with your word today that words of eternal life would sink deeply into our hearts and bear much fruit in our lives. We pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would understand and gain wisdom from your word. And not only that, but that we would also have the conviction to apply it. And we pray for our kids, Lord the children who are here sitting in their cars with their parents, Lord, we pray that these words would fall on their ears, whether they're inside the womb or out, and that in due time, these words would bear fruit in their lives, that they would believe the gospel as well and be saved. Use this time to glorify Christ and to strengthen and encourage us your people. Rescue us from distractions and despair for the glory of Christ during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, you're going to want to keep it open today. I don't think I've ever prepared a sermon with more scripture than this one. My heart and my mind have been turned to Scripture so much lately. I've, I've, I've tried so hard to set my mind on, on God's promises, because when I set my mind on God's promises, it's, it's, it's a rock and a refuge. But if I turn on the news, or if I open up Twitter or Facebook, I'm so easily distracted too. And what I see when I do that is that we live in such incredibly dark times. Such incredibly dark times. And you see it on TV. You see it on social media. We're reminded every time we look at those things that we live in such dark, dark times. There was a time in our country's not-so-distant past when it wasn't this way, when lawlessness was actually frowned upon. Now, if you were just, if you came from outer space and you just landed on earth today and you saw what was going on, you'd think, wow, this is a, this is a place where lawlessness is accepted. But there was a time when lawlessness was frowned upon by society and when we expected it to be punished and stopped. But over the course of the past 10 or 15 years, if you've been watching what's happened in our country, it's been like watching the sunset as darkness has set in to the point where 
Not only is lawlessness around, not only is it abounding, but it's celebrated. It's celebrated, and people are outraged when it's punished. Look at the news from Portland over the last couple days. People are outraged that the lawless are being arrested. What kind of a country does that happen in? A lawless one. And there's a very real danger of living in times that are as dark as these. And that danger is that we come to think that the darkness that we're surrounded by isn't all that bad. There's a very real danger of us getting comfortable in and with the darkness. You can imagine how easily that can happen if you just know the nature of the heart. If you just know what happens when you are repeatedly exposed to sin and you aren't constantly going to battle against it. If you aren't constantly going to battle against it, what happens? You get comfortable with it. You, you think, it's not that bad. As Christians, friends, as Christians, my, my prayer for you, my, my deepest hope for you is that you are guarding yourself against the possibility of that happening to you. See, when a person lives in darkness, they, they learn to adapt to it. Think about it physically. Physically speaking, people can acquire the ability to actually see very well even in the darkness. Now, we aren't nocturnal by nature, but we are so wonderfully and carefully and intricately and amazingly designed, our eyes will actually learn to adjust and similarly, spiritually speaking, it's possible for a person who is not actively guarding their heart and their mind to reach the point where darkness, where, where spiritual, moral darkness no longer feels all that bad. And let me just say that is a very, very dangerous place to be. But it happens. That threat is real to you. To every single one of you, that threat is real. So today, we're not going to talk so much about darkness, although we will be talking about darkness, as we'll be talking about light. We want to talk about light today as we come to John chapter 8, verse 12. Just one verse. And the point of this verse is that the only light that our world has ever known is the light of Jesus. That's the only light that the world has ever known. Now, of course, humanity has gone through seasons of you know, spiritual moral darkness and then coming back into light and then going back into to spiritual moral darkness. I mean, if you think about what, the, what we see in Genesis, uh, mankind and all of creation were instantly plunged into darkness when Adam sinned against God. God created everything good, perfect, but that very quickly changed immediately after Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And it becomes evident how deep, how dark this darkness is. Only one chapter after the fall. In chapter 4, when Adam's son Cain murders Abel, his brother. And later in that chapter, we see that humanity is so cold and so calloused about sin 
that darkness is so real that there's a man named Lamech who is credited with singing the first song, the first song of the Bible, the first song ever recorded in Scripture. And what is that first song all about? It's about murder. It's Lamech bragging in his song about how he murdered a man who wounded him and he murdered a boy who struck him. And if you listen to certain genres of music today, you actually find that exact same theme, don't you? It's disgusting, but it's been there since the beginning. That, that inclination in our hearts to, to sing and celebrate darkness has always been there. It's morally and spiritually corrupt, yes, but there's nothing new under the sun. But while humanity has demonstrated the capacity to live in spiritual and moral darkness, one of the great themes of the Bible and one of the most important themes from John's gospel is the theme of light. Throughout scripture, light, it's an, it's an image. It's, it's a symbol of God's salvation and the hope that God brings. We're introduced to this image immediately in the Bible. Genesis starts off, first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Darkness is broken by light, and the light there is the beginning of God's work. The light is the beginning. It represents the beginning of God's work. It gives us hope for what's to come. It gives us an eager anticipation for for what's coming. And this symbolic imagery, well, it's literal, but it's also symbolic. And this symbolic imagery is then scattered throughout Scripture. We see the theme of light throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. The prophet Isaiah wrote, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. That's from Isaiah 9-2. Psalm 18, verse 28, records the psalmist saying of God, You light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. See, apart from God's work, all there is is darkness. God's word gives us light. The psalmist famously writes in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And Jesus was light. John starts off, this, this great book, the Gospel of John, he starts it off by, by writing in verse, uh, in verse 5 of the first chapter, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, we understand that he's talking about Jesus there. He's referring to Jesus as light. Um, in, in that opening chapter, John uses the word light actually a total of six times to refer to Jesus as a way of, of introducing Jesus. Then when you get to chapter 3, you see it five more times. Five more references to Jesus as light. Why does John refer to Jesus this way so often? 
I mean, I, I suppose it could certainly be because, as I said, throughout Scripture, light is an image. It's, it's a symbol of salvation and hope. And John wants us to know that salvation is in Jesus, and there's no hope outside of Jesus. Jesus brought salvation, and he brought hope. So, you know, for that reason alone, John could justify referring to Jesus as light. But it's also because Jesus referred to himself as the light, the light of the world. And that's what we're going to see in the verse that we're going to be looking at today. As I've mentioned before, throughout our study, there are seven I am statements in the Gospel of, uh, of John. And our verse today contains the second one. The first one was back in chapter 6, verse 35, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Here in chapter 8, verse 12, this is what we read. It says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, as we're looking at this text contextually, looking at the context of it, it comes immediately after this, this first passage in chapter 8, which, as we saw last week, uh, probably doesn't belong in Scripture. Maybe it does. Probably doesn't, either way. Uh, if it does not uh, belong in Scripture, then it's not too surprising that this verse that we come to today is placed exactly where, uh, or, or the, the, the passage we looked at last week, that it was placed exactly where it is um, because the passage uh, in, in question last week told us about the Pharisees trying to hatch this, this dark, this evil, uh, sinister plot to frame Jesus by bringing an adulterous woman before him. Whoever added the story of the adulterous woman later on probably thought that it would be good to proceed this statement in verse 12 that was made by Jesus with a devious act. To, to show us that Jesus is the light of the world, but to set the context with a story that really shows us the darkness of the human heart as revealed in the actions of the Pharisees. But we also see that same darkness. We also see the sinister nature of the Pharisees who are kind of a picture of the unregenerate human heart. They're, they're a picture of the world. Um, we, we see the same evil, darkness, at the end of chapter 7, as one of the Pharisees' own, none other than Nicodemus, rebuked the other Pharisees for failing to follow due process. And the response of the Pharisees upon being rebuked by Nicodemus was to accuse Nicodemus of showing partiality toward Jesus. Either way, Either way, wh whether the, the, the story of the adulterous woman belongs in there or not, uh, if that's what precedes this verse, or if the, the passage with the, the Pharisees um, getting mad at Nicodemus, if that's what precedes this verse. Either way, the darkness of the hearts of the Pharisees who exemplify the unregenerate man who would attempt to replace God's rules with their own rules is contrasted with Jesus declaring that he is the light of the world. Now, in order for us to understand the nature of light, the, the, the beauty of light, it, it's beautiful. Light, light is beautiful. We must understand the nature, or you might even say the terrifying reality of darkness. Because darkness was the condition of the world 
when Jesus stepped down into it. And apart from Jesus and the light that he gives, the world, even today, is still in darkness. And you might be asking, what, what does that even mean? What does it mean to say that the world is in darkness? Well, biblically, it refers to four things. Four things. Number one, it refers to foolishness. Number two, it refers to evil or unrighteousness. Number three, it refers to misery. And number four, it refers to wrath. Foolishness, evil, misery, and the wrath of God. Psalm 14 famously begins by stating, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And, and one of the things that we must see there is that it's in the heart of the fool that he says that. Not in the mind. Not even necessarily from the tongue. It's from the heart. And that's because the heart, biblically, the heart is what determines a person's actions. So when the psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, he's referring to people who know, who know, everybody knows that God exists, but they live as if he doesn't, which is foolishness. But this is humanity's natural condition. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Psalm 83.5 says that the foolish do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. The prophet Micah warned the Israelites of a time to come when God would stop sending prophets to call them to repentance. Writing in Micah chapter 3, verse 6, Therefore it will be night for you, without vision, and darkness for you, without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets, and the day will become dark over them. The first thing we mean, therefore, when we say that the world is lost in darkness is that it is foolish. It is foolish. Not to be confused with stupid. Two different concepts. It's foolish. That means intentionally ignorant. Intentionally ignorant when it comes to spiritual matters. Choosing folly. Choosing superstition. Choosing human wisdom over God's wisdom and over God-honoring religion. This is the condition in any place and in any time when the light of Jesus is not shining or has not shined in a place. This foolishness is exactly what governors desire when they forbid that God's people meet. Let me say that again. That is, this, this foolishness is exactly what governors desire and demonstrate anytime they forbid that God's people meet. It's foolishness. It's complete foolishness. It's ignorance, intentional, willful ignorance. This foolishness, though, is exactly what the world strives for in, in movies, in TV shows, or even in schools, when they teach our, our children whose minds are so vulnerable that Christianity is outdated or that we're, we're the product of naturalistic evolution rather than being created by God or that boys can be girls and, and girls can be boys or, or maybe they're somewhere in between. It all depends on how a person feels on any given day. That is foolishness, willful 
deliberate foolishness. It certainly isn't science. That's not science at all. But it's all driven by a superstitious, God-hating foolishness. And this is a very real darkness, and that's saying it as graciously as I know how to say it. Now, you might ask, who would want to do that? Who, who would want to impose darkness over our society by doing those things, by prohibiting people from, uh, God's people from, from worshiping? But who, what kind of a person would, uh, would teach our children such foolish things? And that brings us to the second characteristic of darkness. It is characterized by evil. It's characterized by, by wickedness, by evil. Proverbs tells us that God preserves the way of his godly ones, but then uh, it goes on a few verses later to warn us of, quote, those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. So there's a contrast there between the ways of uprightness and darkness. If you leave the path of uprightness, you will walk in darkness. You will walk in evil ways, ways that are referred to as ways of darkness. Evil is part of the nature of darkness, biblically speaking. Proverbs 4.19 says, the way of the wicked is like darkness. And of course, when you get to the New Testament, Paul writes in his, letters to the, uh, in his letter to the Ephesians, and this is a good reminder for us, by the way, in our day and age, He writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. See how those two things parallel? Darkness and wickedness. And of course, as we've already seen in our study of of John, we saw what Jesus said back in uh, John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He said, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were, what? Evil. Their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Here's the reality, friends. If you want a world without Jesus, you want a world that is filled with evil. If you want a society where the the light of the gospel is not allowed to shine, you want a society where wickedness and lawlessness and evil prevail. And isn't that exactly what we've seen That is exactly what we have seen in the world, in our country, over the course of the past couple months. Let me repeat what I said a few weeks ago. Do you think that this this age of rioting and looting and lawlessness came out of nowhere? Do you think that it's just a coincidence that it happened immediately after a three-month period in which churches were forbidden from meeting? It's not a coincidence. It's directly connected. It's directly correlated. Here's how foolish and wicked our own governor is. He insisted for months that churches be closed, not even allowed to do drive-in services. There were churches that were ready to do drive-in services, and he directly contacted them, begging them not to. Drive-in services where nobody gets out of their car, and people park six feet away from each other. And he begged churches not to do this. Rather, 
rather than asking churches to come together and to pray for God to alleviate our state and our nation from this disease. If that's not a clear indication that our own governor suffers from a darkened mind, I don't know what does. It's not only foolish, but it is wicked. It's evil. But beyond that, the third characteristic of darkness is that it involves misery. Misery, bondage, and spiritual death. The psalmist mourns and laments in Psalm 114, uh, sorry, 143, verse 3, writing that the enemy, quote, has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. That's misery that he's talking about. He, he's, he, he's under bondage. He hates it. Isaiah wrote to the lawless, uh, and wrote about how the lawless were prevailing. He said, Their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the, uh, the way of peace and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. And he goes on to liken a society that is run by these types of people to living in darkness, writing, Therefore... Justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday, as in the twilight, among those who are vigorous. We are like dead men. It's from Isaiah 59, verses 7 to 10. Tell me that that's not what we see in the world today. We have this social justice cult demanding justice, but it's a justice of their own liking. Indeed, a justice of, of their own invention. God is the one who defines justice. You find it in, in his word. But this cult, what this cult wants is not at all supported by God's word. It is not at all what God has ordained. This cult actually wants the opposite of what God has ordained. Let me tell you how we know that this movement, this social justice cult, is satanic. It starts with understanding that everything within creation has an order. That God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And so he has ordained order into human institutions. The first thing that God has given us to restrain sin and, and to give order in society for the good of society and the, and the individual is the conscience, the human conscience. But this cult has an agenda that includes the searing of the human conscience. They, they call evil good. They call good evil. That's how you sear a conscience. They're trying to reprogram your conscience. That's what that's another way of, of referring to a seared conscience. It's been reprogrammed. It's been flipped upside down. It's, it's, the opposite of, it's seeing the opposite of what God has ordained. So the first thing is the conscience. Secondly, God has ordained the family institution for the restraint of sin and the good of society. But this cult pulls absolutely no punches when it comes to their desire to absolutely obliterate and undo the family structure. They explicitly state that the destruction of the family is one of their goals. 
So first, the conscience. Second, the family. Third, God ordained the government for the restraint of sin and the good of society. They're to punish evildoers and to rule over the lawless. But if you look at our world today, it's the lawless who are ruling over the government. Again, flipping what God has ordained, the order that God has ordained, completely upside down. So the conscience, the family, the government. Fourth, God ordained the church. The church for the restraint of sin and the good of society. That's one of our purposes in God's economy. One of the things that He has created us to do. It's part of, uh, of our function by God's design. We're salt of the earth. That's what Jesus calls us, right? What does salt do? It restrains rot and deterioration. And yet, this, this social justice movement is seeking to undo the church. And if you don't believe me, consider the fact that churches in California are prohibited indefinitely from meeting indoors. If that's not satanic, what is? That's absolutely satanic. They are taking aim at churches. The individual conscience, the family, the government, and the church, all of these things are given a specific order and a specific purpose by God for the good of society and for the restraint of sin. And yet this cult is seeking to flip all of these things upside down. Upside down. There's only one person who could be behind that, and that is Satan. That's how you know that this movement of lawlessness in the name of social justice is satanic. And friends... Hear me very clearly when I say this. As Christians, we can have absolutely no part in it. None. Zero. That's why we left the denomination we used to be a part of. Because they thought the Christians can have something to do with it. Darkness represents foolishness. Darkness represents misery. Darkness represents misery or bondage. And finally, darkness represents God's wrath. The prophet Zephaniah wrote of the day of God's judgment, the outpouring of his wrath against sinful man, writing, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. When Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel, she said of God that he keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. She's talking about an outpouring of his wrath. And she says they will be silenced in darkness. Isaiah said, woe, which which is, by the way, a word of, of being cursed. Word of judgment. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. That's from Isaiah 5.20. Uh, Amos 5.20 says, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? And of course, Jesus also talked about the coming day of God's wrath, the day of, of judgment, the day when, when the, the wicked are cast into hell in which they will suffer eternal conscious torment. He referred to it as the outer darkness and said, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Matthew twenty-two thirteen. And friends, this is all the condition of the world. It's dark. It's filled with foolishness. It's filled with wickedness. It's filled with misery. And it is under God's wrath. That's the world we live in. But it's also the condition of the world that Jesus came into and came as light. And what does light do? Light casts out darkness. It drives darkness away. Speaking of the the coming uh, work of the Messiah, God tells us through Isaiah, I will lead the blind by a way they do not know and paths they do not know. I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do and I will not leave them undone. The prophet Micah said in Micah 7, 8, and by the way, this is a fantastic verse for us to memorize. He said in Micah 7, 8, Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. As Paul makes his defense before King Agrippa in uh, Acts 26, 18, he says that God sent him to the Gentiles, quote, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Peter writes to the church, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was a priest who prophesied of the coming of Jesus. He says in Luke chapter 1, verses 79 and 70, uh, 78 and 79, Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So you see, friends, when we take all of this, this biblical testimony into account and, and to summarize it, what we see is that light is a picture of God's work. It's a symbol of the salvation and the hope that he brings when Jesus says here in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, he meant that he had come to free us from the darkness, to free us from foolishness, to free us from wickedness and bondage and spiritual death. To a world that is so foolish, Jesus reveals truth. To a world that is so wicked, so, so evil, Jesus reveals the very righteousness of God. To a world in bondage and misery, Jesus offers peace and joy. To a world which sits under God's wrath, Jesus offers grace, forgiveness, and redemption. In a dark, spiritually dead world, Jesus' words here in John 8, 12 are a picture of Jesus shining brightly, in the darkness. He is the only true light that the world has ever seen and the only true light that the world has ever or will ever know. We have to see Jesus' words here, by the way, as an explicit claim to be God Almighty himself. The Greek words that Jesus speaks here in reference to himself point 
back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God revealed his name to Moses from the burning bush, saying, Thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now the foolish will say, I, I can't find a single place in Scripture where Jesus claims to be God. But the people of Jesus' time didn't miss what he was saying. They would go on to accuse him of, of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. He says, I am the light. He didn't say that he was a light. No, he's, he's saying that he is the light. Only one. Only one. Now, as we remember the context into which this is spoken, it's the final day of the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, which was a day of singing, a day of instruction and, and worship. And one of the great events uh, that, that took place, one of the ceremonies that took place at the Feast of Booths was the Festival of Lights. There would be four very large candelabras, each of which contained four golden bowls filled with oil, and those bowls filled with oil were lit in the court of the temple. So you got four candelabras, each with four bowls of oil, which gives you 16 enormous lights illuminating the entire courtyard and temple. And at the conclusion of the feast, the lights would be extinguished. They would be put out. And it is at this point where these fires have been put out that Jesus declares that he is the light, the light of the world. The ritual, the, the symbolism of the festival of lights had been pointing to him all along, and he had fulfilled its symbolism. These giant lights in the courtyard of the temple had been a reminder to the people of the pillar of, of cloud and fire that had led and, uh, and accompanied the people, the Israelites, through the wilderness as they fled from Egypt. On the day that the exodus from Egypt began, there was a large cloud that stood between the fleeing Israelites and the pursuing Egyptian armies. And it prevented the people of God from being overtaken, from being attacked. It kept them safe. It kept them from harm. Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22 says, The Lord was going before them, the Israelites, in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So what we see here in John is actually the final illusion in a series of illusions to the imagery that we find in Exodus. In, 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 the, in the Exodus, in chapter 6, Jesus presented himself as the bread of life come down from heaven. In other words, the true manna, right? In chapter 7, Jesus alluded to the water that God had miraculously provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, uh, in, in the rock uh, that, that Moses struck. When Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And here in chapter 8, Jesus alludes to the fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness in the midst of the darkness. Now, what was the significance? What, what was so significant or so special about this pillar of cloud and fire? What did it represent to them and to us? I'd say the most important thing that it probably represented was God's presence with his people. 
It represented God's presence with his people. In an age when, uh, you know, when having light in the darkness was impossible for as many people as they had, they had roughly two million people, remember? That was far beyond the capacity of, of mankind back then to have something that would light the way in the darkness. It's a lot of light for a lot of people. But what a mighty God. Now let's apply that significance to Jesus. Just as the pillar of cloud and fire represented God's presence with the Israelites, Jesus, as the light of the world, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And let us never forget Jesus' promise that he would be with us always. Not sometimes, not once in a while, when things are easy and pleasant. He would be with us always, even to the end of the age. What about today? He's with us today, yes. He's with his people even today. In Micah's words, though I dwell in darkness... The Lord is a light for me. Another significant benefit of the pillar of cloud and fire was that it was a means of protection for the Israelites. The wilderness through which the Israelites wandered would have taken every life, every one of those two million roughly lives in a heartbeat. If the Egyptians didn't, it was going to be the climate in that place. The daytime temperatures in that region can get up to 140 or 150 degrees. No person can withstand that kind of heat for more than a few minutes. And at night, the temperatures fall from 140 or 150 degrees down to below freezing. There's no other region on earth that I'm aware of that has such drastic, such incredible temperature fluctuations. But the pillar of cloud sheltered the Israelites from the heat of the sun in the daytime, and at night it warmed them, protecting them from the freezing temperatures. Without the pillar of cloud and fire, the people of God, the Israelites, would have surely died. And let us also see that Jesus is also both a protector and a provider for all who come to him in faith. He holds us in his hand. And nothing can happen to us that he does not ordain. Nothing. And finally, the pillar of cloud and fire is what guided the Israelites. If they were to have thought that they had a better way to get to the promised land, if they would have departed from the safety of the cloud and the fire, they would have been lost and they would have died. They were in a region that they had never been in before, that they were totally unfamiliar with. How would they have known where to go? They followed the cloud. That's how they knew. That's how they got to their destination. They followed the cloud. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud settled, they settled. We read in Numbers chapter 9, verses, uh, verse 17, Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. So by claiming to be the light of the world, Jesus was not just claiming to be God. He is claiming to be God, but he's also claiming to provide all of these same benefits to anyone and to everyone who follows him in true faith. Jesus is of no benefit to the person who does not follow him. 
just as the cloud in the wilderness would have uh, provided no benefit to any Israelite who didn't follow the cloud and the fire. We therefore must follow Jesus in the same way that the Israelites followed the cloud of fire. We, we, we trust him more than we trust our own understanding, just as the Israelites had to follow the cloud and would die if they instead trusted in their own understanding. Jesus will grant us wisdom and relieve us of our human foolishness through the reading and the studying of his word. Jesus' word will direct us, uh, God's word, the scriptures will direct us away from evil. His promises, when we dwell on them, when we think on them, when we set our hearts and our minds on them, they they alleviate the misery and the suffering that we experience in this dark world, replacing that misery and that, that bondage with freedom and joy and anticipation for what God is still going to do. And Jesus himself has removed God's wrath from us. Indeed, he took, he bore God's wrath in our place, bearing our sin and bearing our shame. And just as the cloud of fire led Israel through the wilderness into the promised land, Jesus, too, will see us through this dark, wicked, miserable world and into the glory of his eternal presence in heaven, where the book of Revelation tells us in Revelation 22, verses 3 to 5, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night." And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Set your minds today on that promise. Set your heart on that promise. Because this is where Jesus is leading his people. If you truly follow Jesus, this is the destination for which every one of you is bound. What can can scare us in the darkness when we know that this is where we're going? Nothing. Nothing. The question is then, if that's where Jesus is going, if that's where Jesus is leading his people, are you following Jesus? Are you willing to move when he moves? Have you set your complete confidence on where he's going and what he's done on behalf of all who believe in him? Do you believe that you will surely perish in the darkness without him? If you do, then you don't need the false light that this world offers. You you don't need the the false uh, shiny things of this world to give you hope. The light you need is not the false light of worldly philosophies. The light you need is not the false light of wokeness. The light you need is not the false light of a self-help book or a self-help seminar. No, the light you need is the light of the world. The Lord Jesus, the one and only true light that the world has ever seen or ever known, 
I urge you, friends, not to be fooled by all of these false lights in the world. Remember what Paul said. What fellowship has light with darkness? Of course, the implicit answer is none. We must not, we, we cannot live and act like the world around us lives and acts. If the world demands that we bow the knee to their values and to their ideals and to their philosophies, we cannot comply. We will not bend the knee to them. To do so would be to bow to darkness and to walk in darkness. No, our job is to be set apart, to be different, to be salt and light, pointing others who are lost in darkness to the true light from which we have received our light. And so therefore, friends, let us be faithful to follow Christ, no matter the cost. And it is becoming costlier in our world to follow him. But we must determine in our hearts, before it even gets more difficult, that we're willing to pay whatever the cost might be. We'll give up whatever we have to give up. There's no cost too great to follow Christ. So let us follow him, no matter the cost, proclaiming his truth and the fact that he alone is the only light that the world has to those who are still lost in darkness as he leads us through the wilderness of this world into his eternal glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is filled with so many amazing promises. And so we pray, Lord, that as we live and breathe physically in this dark world, that you would be a light to us. That your promises would be light to us. Oh, Father, teach us to trust in your promises. Teach us not to find joy in our circumstances, but in our Savior, in what he did on our behalf. Teach us, O Lord, what it means to be salt and light in a dying, dark world. Give us opportunities to shine and give us the courage to shine when we are surrounded by darkness for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. 
Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.